0: You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I have my Bible open to Mark chapter 12. I trust that you will get there as well. As you're finding your place, I have a question for you. How many of you this morning are in love? Raise your hand if you're in love. If you're a husband and you don't have your hand in the room, fail, all right? All right. If you're a teenager and have your hand in the room, put it down. You have no idea what we're talking about right now. Well, I trust that you are in love, even if you are not in a relationship with another human being. Are there any lovers of Jesus in the room right now? All right, are there, is there anybody here that loves church? All right, a little less response. I'll, I'll go one step further. Anybody here love your pastor? All right, did Andrea raise her hand? Okay, good. Um, Well, listen, there's a lot of people that don't love church and a lot of people that don't love Jesus and certainly a lot of people that don't love people that identify as pastors. But uh, we're going to try to change that here this morning. And we're going to talk about what it means to actually simply love church and to simply love God. And uh, in order to do that, we're trying to diagnose a problem. There is a problem in the church. And here's the problem. There are a lot of people too busy to love church. And the reason is not because you don't want to love church. It's not because you don't love God. It's because you have wrapped your lives into so many other things that you don't have anything left over to give to God or to give to church. And we've talked about these, these four different areas here. As we've talked about what it means to be a simply church. It, 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 we only have a limited amount of time. How many of you wish you had more time? How many of you would be more inv- involved in church if you simply had more time? Well, That is a myth. You're not getting any more time. You only get a certain amount, you get to choose what you do with it. Other people say, "Well, I've only got a limited amount of money, and I know they pass that offering bag every week, and they apparently they want my money. I don't have any money, so I guess I'm not going to be very involved in church. Or you don't have enough energy, you're burned out, you're exhausted, or you just don't have enough love. you've got so many other things to love, you've got very little left over to love. The problem is is we're seeing church as a peripheral thing rather than a central thing. God wants the first of your time, the first of your money, the first of your energy, and the first of your love. And so this is a problem, we're trying to diagnose it. And uh, we're trying to change the perception of church. The reality is this, church is not complicated. Church is not hard. When church is central, life actually is simpler. You see, if you put church first, you've got very little time left over for anything else. If you you put God first in your money, then you've got little left over to spend and give and save and and, and plan for the things. If you put God first in all those things, it determines what happens with the rest of it. So we need to change the perception. Now, last week, I told you that in this series, we're going to look at the simplest statements that Jesus made. Because it really is simple. And we've got to stop looking at church as simply a place that we come to. We looked at that word last week that Jesus, when He said, I will build my church, the word that He used was this Greek word. Do you remember what the word was? Anybody in church last week? Anybody in church? Ekklesia, which means called out from and and called out to a purpose. So we who are the church, God's people, are called out from the world. And we are sent back into the world. And Jesus doesn't want us to think about church as a place. Jesus didn't come to build a place. Jesus came to start a movement. And we are following Jesus, which implies we're moving. He gathers us in. We grow up and then we go out. The moment that you start thinking of church as a place is the moment you stall the movement so jesus says come to me and do you remember what he said he's like my yoke is easy remember how we talked about the yoke last week it following jesus is not supposed to be hard it's supposed to be simple now following jesus is not easy taking up your cross denying yourself following jesus jesus didn't imply it's easy But it's not supposed to be complex. It's not supposed to be something that creates complexity. When you get in the yoke with Jesus, it simplifies your life. So that's the thing that we are going after in this series. And today, we're going to look at another of the simple statements of Jesus. Here's the big idea of the message. A, A simple church is designed to move people into deeper love with God, and deeper in love with people. That's what a simple church does. It's all about loving God and loving people. And when we get that right, these four categories take care of themselves. So let's begin to read here in Mark chapter 12. Let's begin in verse 28. If you're ready, say I'm ready. Verse 28, we encounter Jesus in a conversation with a Bible fathead. Verse 28 says... And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Now, these scribes were representatives from the the, kind of the, the predominant religious leaders, the predominant religious system from the Jews. The religious leaders had become these Pharisees. They were Bible scholars. They studied the Bible. They knew the Bible. They interpreted the Bible. And they had studied so much that they had made the Bible impossibly Complicated to actually understand and learn from and grow from. And so this scribe comes up to Jesus and he's got a question for him. It says that seeing that he answered them well, he asked him a very important question. This is a great question. This is the question we're gonna answer here today. Here's the question. Which commandment is the most important of all? That's a great question. Do you know what this scribe wanted? He was looking for simple. He was on a search for simple. Apparently, in all of his study, he had realized how complex these Pharisees had made things. How many commandments are there? How many commandments? Bible trivia in church. If you don't know this, you had not been in church very long. What's the answer? What's the answer? Ten. 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 Ten commandments. Now, how many of you could actually stand right now and say all ten of the commandments? Um, yeah, you might get seven, eight. You're probably going to leave a couple out, right? I mean, 10 is kind of a lot to, to know and, and, and almost impossible to follow. Do you know what these religious leaders had done? They had taken the Ten Commandments and increased them to 613. 613. I have a, have a book in my library. It's written by a, uh, a Jewish uh, rabbi scholar. And he explains all 613 of the commandments. You see, what they had done is, is they, you know, they just couldn't understand. They couldn't think that God would only give us simple tasks, that, that He could be that simple. What they did is that as they read the Hebrew of the text where the Ten Commandments are listed in Exodus chapter twenty. They discovered there's actually 613 Hebrew characters that make up these Ten Commandments. I'm like, well, then they attached 613 commands that they found in other places of the Old Testament to those Hebrew characters, and they came up they, they came up with 243 negative commandments. Thou shalt not do this. One for every member and organ of the body. Okay. And then they found 365 negative commandments, uh, 365, what did I say? The 243 was the positive commandments, thou shalt." and the, six, the 365 were negative commandments, thou shalt not. One for every day of the year. And it all added up to 613 commands. And this scribe comes up to Jesus and says, um, I've only got a limited amount of time. I've only got a limited amount of money, a limited amount of energy and a limited amount of love. If I could only get one, one thing done, what would be the one commandment that I would not want to violate? It's a great question. He's looking for simple. It's the same question you should be asking. If I could only do one thing, what is the one thing, the main thing that God is looking for from me? great question. And Jesus gives him an answer by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, the most familiar Old Testament text. And this is what he says in verse 29. Jesus answered him. The most important is. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. Here's the most important thing. The Lord our God, the Lord is, how many numbers do you have listed in your Bible? One. How many gods? One God. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Before I tell you what the commandment is, there's there's something you need to know. If you are trying to obey more than one God, there is no way your life is going to be simple. Do you know what we too often do? The reason some of our lives are so complex, the reason we're stressed out, burned out, and got nothing left over is because we are trying to love more than one God. There's so many good things out there. Sports and entertainment and relationships and friends, all good things, none of them worthy to be God things. But because we've elevated them to the highest level, do you know what we do? We end up giving the best of our time, the best of our money, the best of our energy, and the best of our love to things that should never have the place of God in our lives. And do you know why we don't serve and love God more? It's because we have elevated other things to the place of God in our lives. And Jesus reminds them, you want a simple life? Maybe the first thing you should do is um, eliminate everything that's not God from the priority of your life. Hear, O Israel, hear, O harvest, the Lord is one. And then he gives us the commandment. And again, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says this, verse 30, you shall love the Lord. The law is love. The greatest commandment is love. What God wants from you is your love. And he tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. So I'll give you two love your neighbor as yourself oh it's still kind of one isn't it what god wants is love love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe said to him you're right He was so relieved. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Yeah, he's got all the answers. We're not going to be able to stump him. I think we probably should just listen and stop asking questions. If you love the Lord, all the other questions get answered. And you won't be far from the kingdom of God. So the problem is that we're giving our love to so many other things and is making life way too complicated. And you falsely believe that loving the Lord would make your life more complicated. Loving the Lord and loving the church actually makes your life more simple. So we've got to get this right. Now, we're going to see this here. What the Lord wants from us is a wholehearted, soul-consuming, mind-bending, calorie-burning, world-changing love. You ready to study that? So let's do that. The first thing that the Lord wants us to do is to adore, adore Him with a wholehearted love. Notice the word all. It's a very complex Greek word. If you have to, if you study it out and parse the whole thing out, what the word actually means, it's a little misleading. What the word actually means is all. He wants all your heart. He wants an undivided heart from you. He doesn't want a divided heart. He doesn't want 63% of your heart. He wants 100% of your heart. Love the Lord with all your heart. Loving God with your heart. So what is this heart thing here? This heart that we read about so often in scripture is, it just simply means the deepest part of you. Your heart is the container of you. The heart is the core of your identity. The heart is you stripped away from all of your fashion, all of your pretense, all of your makeup, All of your external activity at the core of who you are, what you are left with is your heart. And God says, that's what I want you to love me with. The core of who you are. So loving God with all of your heart means that you give God access to your core identity. God, I love you so much. I'm going to give you all access to shape the deepest part of who I am. And I'm actually going to give you the right to change who I am at the core of who I am. Even if I identify as something else, God, my core identity is going to be shaped by you. And so loving God means giving him access to all the core of you. That's what it means to love God the Lord with all your heart. And the reason why that's so important is your heart shapes everything else you do. Your heart controls your external activity. In the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter four, we're told to keep the heart or to guard the heart with all diligence. You know why? Because everybody wants a piece of your heart. Everybody wants to shape your identity. You've got to guard it from everything that would shape it except God. And once it's guarded and God only has exclusive access to your heart, do you know what's going to happen? It's going to change what comes out of you. For from it flow the springs of life. What comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your activity... It comes from the heart. So we love God from our heart. You know what that means? That means that God does not want your external religious activity. Your heart is revealed by what comes out of it. And your heart is revealed when there is nothing else forcing you to do anything religious. Now, think about that. If your parents didn't require you to love God, if your pastor wasn't yelling at you for 45 minutes every Sunday, if there was no external activity, if there was no tax deduction for loving God with your money, if nobody else saw you, if nobody else noticed you, question, how much would you love God? When there is no external pressure, when there is no financial benefit, when there is no status and no reward, do you still love God? That reveals whether you are loving God with your heart. Jesus said, it's the greatest commandment to love me from the inside out, not because of the outside pressure that is making you obey him. Your heart is revealed when no one else is watching you. Adore God with a wholehearted love. Secondly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. So we are to enjoy God with a soul-consuming love. What's the difference between the heart and the soul? Well, they're kind of indistinguishable in Scripture, but if we said that your heart is the core of your identity, the container of your identity, we might say that your soul is the container of your affections, your emotions. Your soul controls your feelings, So loving God with your soul means you give God your adoration, your expressions of love. That means that you're moved emotionally by God. Now, I don't know about you. I grew up in a church that kind of was real suspicious of people that got emotional during church. I mean if somebody raised their hand during church we thought they had a question. And it's like some, can somebody please go answer their question they have just just put your hand. And then then people that would we would like move a little bit during during the service, we, we, we thought they had to go to the bathroom. And so, you know, it's just like, what are all those crazy people down there on front? They're, they have tears flowing down their eyes. They must be so sad. And, and these people, they're just like, they, these people need counseling. I mean, just put them in a room and just kind of contain them. They might get a little out of control over here. You can't trust your emotions. And so I was kind of taught, it's like, don't, don't get emotional. That's so shallow. Now I think that's negatively impacted my relationship with God. Now, some of you that that are real emotional and and of course, you know, we, we I hope there was some sense of emotion during that worship set. Did you have some sense of emotion if you went through that 30-minute set of of worship and there wasn't something in your heart that was like ready to go charge hell with a hot water pistol and just love everybody and give all your money away and just is like, ah, oh, it's all, just, just take me now. Then then you need to love God a little more emotionally. That's what some of you that do love to lift your hands and express emotionally, you're real concerned that the people that sit there in church like a bump on a pickle are actually ready to go to the funeral home. What's wrong with you people? How can't you emote in response to this wonderful name of Jesus, this powerful, beautiful name of Jesus it's, see these emotional people are like they even interrupt the sermon and it makes it really hard to preach and stuff. No, this is awesome. What we're saying is we enjoy a relationship with Jesus and there should be some emotion. There should be something to be said about outward expressions of Jesus. There's this really awkward moment in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is invited to come over to dinner with a religious fathead, with, with a Pharisee. And so it's, you can imagine how formal and stuffy it would be. And, and they're probably debating Old Testament scripture or something. And, and in the middle of this, there's a, there's a prostitute that walks in the room and she's crying and she has brought perfume the thing that makes her smell better than she probably actually is, the most expensive treasure that she has. She breaks open the jar. She pours it over Jesus' feet. She's weeping. She takes her hair. She starts wiping Jesus' feet with her tears. And the Pharisee looks at the woman and says, if Jesus knew... Who this woman really was, he wouldn't let her within 10 feet of him. Jesus looked at him and told a story. He said, "A banker loaned money to two debtors. One 500 bucks, 150 bucks." Both of the men came back and said, "I can't pay my debt." The banker forgave them both, and Jesus asked a question, "Which of these two guys do you think would love him more?" Answer. The one that was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. And then he turned his attention back to the woman. And he said this, her sins, which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you know what the second line is talking about? The religious fathead who thinks he doesn't have many sins and doesn't need to be forgiven much, that's the guy that has trouble emotionally loving God. What's the relationship? The more of an awareness you have of the magnitude of your sin and the extravagance of God's grace to forgive said sin, the more free you will be to love The Lord, if you have a problem loving God, it's because you have a pride problem. You think you are better than a prostitute and you're not. All of us stand condemned before God because of the sin in our heart. And when you understand the weight of God's grace to forgive the enormity of your sin, there will be expressions of love. That is a soul-consuming love that enjoys this relationship with Jesus. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you shed a tear as an expression of love to God? When was the last time a smile broke out on your face as you thought about the riches of God's grace to you? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, the container of your affections. Here's the third thing he said, Love the Lord, your God, with all of your mind. Now, some of you are so glad that point two is over with because you're a thinker, not a feeler. It's like, I can get into loving God with my mind. You put a theology book in front of my face. You close me in a room with a library full of theology books. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love that experience there. Listen, nothing wrong with that. But there should be both heart and head involved in loving God love the Lord your God with all of your mind your mind is the container of your thoughts and so your mind controls how you think and what you think if you have a hard time loving God because you are a thinker not a feeler then you simply haven't had right thoughts about God simply put if you don't love God It's because you don't yet know God. Because to know him is to love him. Have you ever heard that phrase before? This is not an original message at all. To know him is to love him. I think there was even a song written about this, right? To know him is to love him. But that comes straight from scripture. First John chapter four, verse eight. Anyone who does not love, you have a problem loving? Your love thing broken? The problem is you don't know God. Your knowledge of God is insufficient. You don't have enough fuel in the tank of your heart to express your love to God. You need more knowledge of God. You need more right thinking about God because God is love. Honestly, I'm talking to some people right now who simply you're you're not a big fan of God. And the reason is because you're a thinker and you have thoughts like, eh, if, if God was all that great, then there wouldn't be suffering and hunger in the world. And, 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 and if God was all that great, my grandmother wouldn't have died of cancer. And if God was all that great, he would just fix all this stuff and, and he would he would take away my acne and um, he'd put more money in the bank. And I don't understand why I had this accident here. And, and, and you're a thinker. And the reason you can't love God is you're not thinking rightly. About God. You need to understand the sovereignty and the omniscience and the wisdom and the goodness and the grace of God to understand that we don't deserve anything good from God, and yet, out of His own grace, He's chosen to love us, drawing us to Himself. And if you know how good God is, you will be able to love Him with a mind-bending love. To love the Lord your God means you love truth. If you're a lover of God, you are allergic to lies and myths. You have an ability to, to detect and destroy things that are not true about God. If you love God with all of your heart, you'll be able to have enough discernment to apply the riches of the gospel To every component part of your life. You don't just think about God when you're at church. You think about how does God want me to love him with my finances, with my algebra test, with my relationship to my ex-spouse and to my stepchildren and every other component part of your life. Philippians 1.9 tells us that Paul's prayer was that your love may abound more and more. How's that happen, Paul? He says, with knowledge and discernment. Do you see how he connects this heart relationship of love to our head relationship of love? More and more love as I acquire more and more knowledge and discernment about God. Now, some of you like this point. Just stay right there, and just let's let's talk about more knowledge of God, and let's get some thicker theology books around here, and let's think about some of those things. Listen, you need to learn about God. Learning about God is a prerequisite to loving God. But please hear me: learning is never a substitute for loving. If you get stuck learning about God, without loving God, you are actually the most dangerous guy in the church. You will become so puffed up with pride that you think the more you know about God, the closer you are to God and nothing could be further from the truth. A four year old little girl that simply trusts and believes Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so and she responds to that with joy and happiness and lets that shape her thinking and lets that shape her life, is closer to the kingdom of God than the scholarly, religious, academic PhD that's got a head full of Bible knowledge, who doesn't love God. That guy's dangerous. So learning about God is never a substitute from Loving learning about God is never a substitute for loving God, but there's one more thing Loving God is never a substitute for living for God. That's why he goes to the next thing Love the Lord God with all of your strength Serve God with a calorie burning love If your thought about loving God Is getting your Bible open cup of coffee in front of a fireplace, snuggled up with a onesie (laughs) and just, I'm just going to sit here and love Jesus all day long. Just love Jesus so much. Just love, love, love. Oh, Jesus, I love you. And Tears streaming down your face. I'm so in love with Jesus, Jesus. Listen, if you're not burning any calories while you're loving God, there's a problem. Anybody here got a Fitbit or one of those things that like, hey, hold your hand up if you got a Fitbit or like an Apple watch or whatever those things. Hey, look at it right now. Somebody tell me how many calories you've burned today. John, John, how many calories you burned today? All right. Somebody that knows how to use the thing. Talk to me. Anybody know how many, anybody, somebody tell me how many, how many calories you burned? 600. You've burned 660 calories today. And it's 1048 in the morning on a Sunday, all right? So you got a ways to go. But uh, <laughs> 640, 660 calendars, is, is there anybody that has one of those that actually tells you how many calories you burned for God? <laughs> what if you get to the end of the day, you burn 2000 calories and somehow you can tell on your, your calendar, look, 96% of the calories you burned today were actually spent loving yourself. And only 4% of what you did today was actually burning calories, loving God. Somebody invent that. Okay, that would be awesome. Listen, love the Lord with all your strength. That means there has to be some muscle movement in your loving God. And by the way, if the most calories you burn loving God happens inside the church, that's a fail. We're to take the love of God out of here and to love people, which is coming up next here. But we serve God with a calorie burning love. Interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your what? Mm-hmm. Body. I thought you said it's supposed to be loving God with my heart. Yeah, Jesus said, love him with your body too. All your strength, all your muscle movements, all your mouth movements to form words as you proclaim the gospel. Using your hands to give and to serve and to build. Using your ears to listen to where things need to To change, And you need to speak truth into those things. Using your eyes to read God's word and to see need in the community. We love the Lord. We glorify the Lord using our bodies. Um, There's times that that Andrew and I are someplace and we need to get from one uh, place to the next. And we don't have a car. But we do have a phone and my phone has an app on it called Uber. Are you familiar with this? And it's the greatest thing of all time. It's the only thing that's better is a Fitbit. So the Uber thing, this is what you do. You, you, you You call a ride. You use somebody else's vehicle to get you where you want to go. Right? Have you ever used this before? Okay? You understand that our bodies need to be available to God the way that an Uber driver is available to us? Anytime God wants me to take his presence into a place, he should just be able to like, Trent, right now, boom, right here, and you're taking me from here to here. Yes, I'm totally available. Wherever you wanna go today, God, I am your vehicle. I am my body, your vehicle. Where do you wanna go, what do you wanna do? That is a relationship. Remember, it's all about movement. And so if God wants me to move, to change, to go, to work, to sweat, until you have sweat, loving God, You haven't quite loved the Lord God with all your strength. And so let's love Him with all of our strength. And then there's one more thing here represent God with a world changing love. Jesus said the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people have taken that and they've really, really messed up the meaning of that. Some people have said, now see, before you can love your neighbor, you have to love yourself. So you need to spend time loving yourself. Go to Krispy Kreme, get some donuts, and love yourself there, and go to the, sh- go to the mall, spend some money on yourself, and, and stand in front of the mirror and make yourself look good until you look good, girl. You ain't ready to go love nobody else, right? That, no, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. Do you know what Jesus is teaching? Jesus is teaching you already love yourself. <laughs> Now, if you could just burn a few calories loving other people the way that you already burn calories, spend money, and love yourself, you'd get close to capturing the meaning of what I'm calling you to do. Stop loving yourself. Start loving somebody else. Represent God with a world-changing love. In 1 John... John got this. He was a disciple of Jesus and he said, beloved. He loved to use that word. Beloved. That's what we are. We are the beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. So if, if you think you had an image, if you, you've had a paranormal experience with God and you saw God. No, you didn't. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know, what the, you know what he's saying? The world is longing to see God, but God is spirit. He's invisible. The way the world sees God is when they see God's people loving them. He abides in us and his love is perfected or manifested or made known, become visible to the world when we love somebody and stop loving ourselves. So that may mean relieving suffering. That may mean, for many of us, loving someone that is really hard to love, loving someone who doesn't love us back, forgiving someone who has done atrocious things to us. You say, I don't I don't think I can do that. But I love Jesus. I just can't love that person. Wait, 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 wait. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For who does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has, who for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Don't tell me you love God if you are angry, bitter, resentful, slanderous toward another brother in Christ. Represent God with a world-changing love. Learning about God is not a substitute for loving God. Loving God is not a substitute for living for God and walking it out by loving other people. I want you to close your Bible. I want you to bow your head. And I want you to respond to what the Spirit of God may have said to you through His Word. Who did God just bring to mind? A face? A name? Do you love that person? So, no, I have a lot of trouble loving them, but I sure do love God. Wait, 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 that's not, that's not what God says. The overflow of your love for God is loving others. Loving a dark, lost world that needs the love of God. That's what our job is, that's what our mission is. Before you think about loving a person You just need to tell the Lord right now. Lord, I have loved so many other things. Given my time, my energy to good things, I've had very little left over for you. Just confess that to the Lord. I haven't loved you the way that I should. Maybe there are some thinkers in the room and you haven't thought rightly about God. You stumble over questions of the universe, you stumble over questions of justice and fairness. You need to think about the goodness, the grace of God to love someone like you. What's interesting about this whole passage is, it's a command. It's the greatest command. You say, well, I just don't feel it. I just don't feel anything. He's not commanding you to feel something. He's commanding you to do something. To put Him first. Would you just tell Him right now, Lord, I do love you. Love you with my whole heart. I don't want to give you 63% or 97%. I want to give you all. I want to give you the core of my identity. I want to give you access to the core of who I am. I want to know you. Would you stand with me, heads bowed and eyes closed? I want to pray for you. Father, as we come. We know that there's so many things that compete for our love. We're about to dismiss ourselves in a world where there will be screens and music and friends and books, so many things to try to get our love, to get our time, our energy, our money, our love. God, I pray that we would. Greatest command, the simplest thing you ever ask us to do is to love you with all of our hearts. We do love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's we'll sing together.